Amen. Well, just, just to get started, I want to just ask everyone to get up on their feet and turn to your neighbor, give them a high five or a hug or something, right? Uh, the second Sunday of Easter is notoriously low energy, so all right. <laughs> You guys were ready for that. Nice. All right, please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in our passage today, Jesus famously, but no less shockingly, says, I am the bread of life. This is just one of the many self-referential I am statements that occurs in the Gospel of John, uh, which of course is a reference back to the mysterious I am that I am name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Again and again in the Gospel of John, shockingly, we see Jesus taking this title upon himself. I am the light of the world. John 8, I am the gate I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, I am the resurrection and the life. John 11, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, I am the true vine. John 15. Now taken cumulatively, these exalted claims give a clear testimony not only to who Jesus is, right? The great I am made flesh but also to who Jesus is for us. What is the identity of Jesus Christ in relation to mankind? Well, he's the gate. He's the vine. He's the good shepherd, the bread of life. He is in himself everything that human beings need at our most deep down level. He is, as it were, the new tree of life that we lost access to way back in the garden. Remember that, how in the story of creation, the partaking of physical fruit carried spiritual consequences. Remember that? And it became the source of our death. Now, this is also true in the new, uh, in the new creation that Jesus came to inaugurate. To feed on him restores our lost connection. The cross of Christ becomes the tree of life. Indeed, though the full meaning of Elizabeth's words to the Virgin Mary in Luke 1.42 could not be fathomed at the time, how prophetically fitting it was for her to declare to her younger cousin, blessed is the fruit of your womb. But how do we receive the fruit of this beautiful salvation? How do we become participants in the eternal life of the Son of God? Jesus has much to say about this in John 6, but this morning I'm going to key in on three themes. Um, faith, the Eucharist, and the cross. So buckle up, this is going to be a little bit more of a teaching-heavy sermon rather than a preaching-heavy one, so put your thinking caps on, as my teachers used to say. But uh, we begin with faith. Faith is the starting point for our life in Christ. And if you think about it, repentance, which is another crucial ingredient, presupposes faith. Obedience presupposes faith. I mean, why would we obey Jesus unless we believe that he's Lord? 
And of course, receiving the Eucharist presupposes faith. Now, would you please grab a Bible and turn with me to John 6, page 891? Last time we looked at the miraculous multiplication of the loaves, the feeding of the 5,000 plus, and how Jesus joined back up with his disciples through a, uh, we'll call it a most impressive shortcut, walking upon the Sea of Galilee. And all this pointed to Jesus' divinity as the creator, as the sustainer, as the great I am, which he proclaims to them from out upon the water. Now, after these events in verses 22 through 24, uh, many among the well-fed crowd hopped aboard ships themselves to go looking for Jesus on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And when they finally catch up to him, Jesus says to the crowds in verse 26, if you look with me, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, signs which rightly understood would have pointed the crowds to Jesus' heavenly identity. He wanted them to see the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, they're seeking Jesus not for spiritual goods, but for physical goods. The bread of life was on offer, and all the people could think about was wonder bread. And how often do we do the same? Just as Sarah pointed out, trading away a life of prayer for a fourth episode on Netflix. Trading away the bread of life for the jelly beans of this world. As C.S. Lewis put it, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are all too easily pleased. So Jesus exhorts them and us in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but by contrast, for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And people respond, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them in verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe. Turn to your neighbor and say, believe in him whom he has sent. Now, really, what a relief. Do you know what God wants most from you? He tells you right here, it's not too hard. He wants you to believe in Jesus. Now, it may sound strange uh, for Jesus to speak here uh, of belief as a work, because in the wider New Testament, faith is not usually categorized as such. For the Apostle Paul, for example, faith is the way that we receive the finished work of Christ. But on the other hand, I think Jesus uses the word work here um, to highlight the necessity of human assent. Because while salvation is indeed a free gift, it's not a gift that he just sort of thrusts upon us. Rather, it's necessary that we receive the gift by faith. But, some might ask, doesn't Jesus say in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him? And indeed, this is what theologians refer to as prevenient grace. That is, grace that enables us to respond to God's call. And to be clear, this doctrine is not specific to Calvin. It's accepted by Wesleyan and Ar Armenians, by Catholics, by Eastern Orthodox alike. 
And as St. Augustine proved during his clash with the heretic Pelagius way back in the early 400s, fallen human beings are not able to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And yet somehow, mysteriously, the scriptures also affirm that God does not wish that any should perish, but desires that all people should be saved. Now, to be clear, I don't claim to understand the biblical interplay between predestination on the one hand and human responsibility on the other. On this point, the Anglican commentator Rod Whitaker is surely correct when he writes, it is a mystery how salvation can be open to all, yet dependent on the will of God. Several explanations have been offered over the centuries, but they all seem to collapse one side of the mystery or the other. So I'm afraid we're just going to have to let that ambiguity rest with us. I don't think we're going to solve it this morning. But at the very least, on a pastoral note, I can say if you're worried about whether or not you're chosen, the scriptures would bid you not to freeze up, but rather to take the risky step of faith. As Christ himself affirms in verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And again in verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone... You see that? Everyone, it's a universal offer, though it's not universally received. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. All right, so we began with faith, and our second major theme is the Eucharist, also called Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. Jesus calls out to our hungry souls in John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, what is Jesus really talking about in this whole bread of life discourse? His incarnation? The cross? The Lord's Supper? Well, the answer, according to the historic church, is yes. But is Jesus using metaphorical language, or is he talking about something that's like metaphysically real? The answer, again, is yes. Have you ever thought about how food works? How it transfers life from one organism to another? There's this life-to-life transfer from the fruit to us, or from the flesh of the animal to us. For example, in order to gain life from eating an apple, we first need to pick it from the tree. But the moment we do so, we cut off the fruit from its life source, don't we? So the apple is actually dead when we eat it. I mean, it it may be ripe, hopefully it is, um, but it's no longer alive. And when we eat the apple, not to sound too morbid, but uh, its death, what happens, its death becomes a source of life For us, there's a transfer of the life of the fruit to the life of our bodies. And it works basically the same way with meat. It's it's almost a sacrificial exchange, isn't it? The death of the animal always comes before the life-giving benefit of its flesh to us, right? And on the other hand, it's important to note that The life-giving quality of all these foods is only temporary. You know, they give us energy and vitamins and nutrients, but after a while, the benefit of these foods eventually runs out, and we grow hungry again, and if we don't eat, eventually we die. 
This is the way that it works with all mortal foods, even with the manna, says Jesus in verse 49. But the food that Jesus is talking about is categorically different. He says it provides an eternal satisfaction so that the one who eats of it will never hunger again. This is impossible unless the food that he's talking about is not of this world, right? So think with me for a moment. What would happen if we were to eat food that comes from an eternal life source? What if the food comes from any mortal being? Wouldn't it mean that the life that flows into us is also an eternal life? And this is exactly what Jesus is implying. He has already said in the previous chapter that the Son of God, like the Father, has life in himself. John 5, 26. It's part of his divine nature. And so the flesh and blood that he gives is an immortal kind of food which transfers immortality to all who eat of it. You guys with me? This is what the Lord's Supper is all about. What Jesus has by nature we get to participate in by grace. Jesus has promised, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now, I probably need to pause for a moment and give an apologetic for offering such a strong Eucharistic reading of John chapter 6, because there are some who consider it to be a matter of controversy. But rest assured the sacramental reading that I've been sharing with you is not a mere novelty. It was universally taught for the first three quarters of Christian history and is still believed by the majority of Christians today. It might not feel that way in the southeast United States. Uh, we're living in sort of Anabaptist land, but this has been the reading that the church has taken from the beginning. Now, last time I gave several reasons for thinking that Jesus is talking about the Eucharist. For example, the fact that Jesus uses the image of drinking blood here in John 6, uh, when wine actually had nothing to do with the feeding of the 5,000. But this is just one point, and there are many other hints in the text, more than I can name. But for example, the Greek verb uh, form of Eucharist, Eucharistio, already a euphemism for Holy Communion in the early church, is used in verse 11 and again in verse 23 or that Jesus uses a very tactile and not symbolic Greek word here translated feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood in verse 54 and when the crowd is scandalized at the end of this passage right Jesus doesn't sort of like adjust his language and say like no come back I wasn't being really serious you know um, rather he doubles down Stating plainly in verse 45, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. I mean, honestly, what else could Jesus be referring to here? Since nobody ever drank his actual blood, nobody ever actually took a bite of his arm, what else could Jesus be talking about? In his excellent commentary on the Gospel of John, Rod Whitaker puts it this way. He says, in John, the physical and spiritual are interconnected. For the physical is spirit-bearing in John. The word became flesh. Now, I could give many other textual reasons and examples, but perhaps the most convincing of all for me is that the Gospel of John was written near the end of the first century at a time 
when most of the New Testament was already recorded and the observance of the Lord's Supper was already at the center of Christian worship. So the notion that the first readers of John's Gospels would not have immediately applied this bread of life discourse to the Eucharist seems almost preposterous to me. For example, turn with me uh, to our New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians 11. It's on page 958. Though it was written probably about a full 40 years earlier than John's Gospel, we see that the Lord's Supper is already a distinct ritual in the church, distinguished from regular eating and drinking that happens in fellowship, which is why the Apostle Paul can write, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Verse 22, and again, is anyone hungry? Let him eat at home. Verse 34, that's not what this is about, right? Furthermore, far from viewing the elements as mere symbols, which is usually the main reason for rejecting a Eucharistic reading of John 6, they are referred to as the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 27. What's more, the apostle implies in verse 30 that as a result of participating in an unworthy manner, many of them are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, pardon my sarcasm, but this doesn't sound like a memorialist view of the sacrament. Indeed, those who reject a, a Eucharistic reading of John 6, may I suggest that the locus of their hang-up is not the doctrine of sola scriptura, or scripture alone, but rather it's more likely rooted in the humanistic and anti-supernatural currents of our modern world. We refuse to believe that the divine invades the world, therefore we empty the sacraments of all true divinity. Our unconscious instinct is to think, well, maybe in the past there were things like theophanies and, and miracles and angels and revelations, but these realities, they're always safely relegated to you know, some other distant time and place. But as Christians, we should look with a healthy dose of skepticism on all of these one, two, skip a few, 99, 100 views of church history and doctrine. Most people tend to have a bias toward modern ideas, as if we live in the only age of true enlightenment. But brothers and sisters, if no one ever taught it prior to the 16th century or the 19th century or the last 50 years for that matter, it's probably not biblical. It's likely a product of the zeitgeist, the spirit of this age, and not the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sent to guide the church from the beginning. We're not the only ones with the Holy Spirit, right? Now, this is not to imply that the biblical interpretations of the early Christians were infallible, that they never got it wrong, but it's to make the more modest point that there was less historical dis distance between the earliest Christians and the world of the New Testament, uh, New Testament, right? And more generally, that ancient people knew how to read ancient texts addressed to their times. Finally, I'm not here seeking to argue for a specific theory of the Eucharist or trying to solve all the medieval Reformation debates on the topic, but I'm advocating for a real presence view of the earliest Christians. This view could be described in this way. Before the Eucharistic prayer, the elements were understood simply as bread and wine. But after being consecrated, they were understood to be the body and blood of Christ. Now, I believe this is nothing more than a restatement of the apostolic teaching that we've just looked at. 
In fact, listen to this account from Justin Martyr, who was born around 100 AD, right around the time that the Gospel of John was written, this man was born. Justin's writings are not scripture, of course, but he does give a snapshot of how early Christians understood the Lord's Supper. He writes, We do not receive these gifts as ordinary food or ordinary drink, but as Jesus Christ, our Savior, was made flesh through the word of God in the same way, that is, in the same way as the incarnation. The food over which thanksgiving has been offered through the word of prayer which we have from him, the food by which our blood and flesh are nourished through its transformation is, we are taught, the flesh and blood of Jesus who was made flesh. Now that sounds to me a lot like John 6. Even Martin Luther, right? The arch reformer believed this. So it's a mistake to think it's a, this basic affirmation of the Lord's Supper somehow undermines the Reformation. That's not true. Indeed, I saw a recent interview with Francis Chan, the famous evangelical preacher and best-selling author, where he publicly was repenting for failing to acknowledge the doctrine of real presence in the Eucharist. And after a deep dive into church history, as well as a closer reading of 1 Corinthians, Chan said that he now personally believes what the church universally taught for its first thousand years. Amen? We should too. Okay, so we've talked about faith, we've talked about the Eucharist, and, and I, I want to finish by focusing on the cross, right? Because this theme is probably the most subtle of the three in the passage, but in a way, it unlocks the other two. After all, what good is it to believe in Jesus if he hasn't really provided for us atonement? Right? We don't believe that our faith saves us all on its own apart from the grace of God that's come to us through the cross. And because of that grace, we can receive it by faith. Likewise, without the efficacy of the cross, the Eucharist would be an empty ritual. So in order for him to feed the world with his own life, Jesus first had to sacrificially offer it up. The second half of verse 51, he says, and the bread that I will give, notice the future tense, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At this point in the story, the son of God hasn't yet offered himself up on the tree. His life hasn't yet been sacrificed. The bread hasn't yet been broken, so to speak. The cup hasn't yet been poured out. But here's the thing, it must happen. As we pointed out, this is the way it works with all food. Life is always offered from death. The eternal life works the same way. In the offering of his own flesh and blood on the cross, Jesus put away all sin and fallenness, everything that was debased and wrong with the world died with him. And unlike with fruit or with cattle or all other earthly food, Jesus didn't stay dead. After offering his own flesh for the life of the world, he rose again in power because he possessed in his nature an indestructible life, as it says in Hebrews. Through the cross, death has died and the immortal one has swallowed up our mortality. And if we're united with Jesus, we'll be raised with Jesus he promises this four times in our passage today from John 6. Whoever believes, verse 40, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. Verse 54. Alleluia! Christ is risen! Alleluia. 
Friends, this is the gospel. Jesus Christ is the bread of heaven who has come down from glory to offer his flesh for the life of the world. Just as the Jews believed that every Passover celebration, it was a participation in the original Passover. So every Eucharist is a participation in Christ's once and for all sacrifice. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 5, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, therefore let us keep the feast. Or in the words of the great Oxford historian and hymn writer William Bright, once, only once, and once for all, his precious life he gave. Before the cross our spirits fall and own it strong to save. One offering, simple and complete, with lips and hearts we say, but what he never can repeat, he shows forth day by day. Amen.